0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Poison Pen Podcast event, whatever you want to call it. Uh, My name's Patrick. I am your science fiction fantasy selector. And today I have the honor of having a great conversation with Daniel Suarez. He's a Prometheus award-winning and New York Times bestselling author. Uh, You've been a TED Global speaker. Uh, You're a former a uh, systems analyst whose uh, novels really explore h- the high-tech field, physics, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, your latest book, Critical Mass, really brings in the ideas of climate change, uh, how we adapt, um, and is really a fantastic book. This is part of the Delta V series, though not necessarily you have to read Delta V before you read. So you can read this standalone. But it's just that
1: much better if you read Delta V first. It adds a dimension to it.
0: It really does. So we're we're going to have a really great conversation tonight. Everybody, let's give a warm welcome to Daniel Suarez.
1: Thank you. And thank you for coming.
0: Yeah, and, and for those of you online, thank you very much. Um, uh, for those of you who are interested in picking up a copy of Daniel's book, of course, uh, purchasing through the poison pen goes directly to his publisher so that that way we get him back. Um, and they want us back. And that's um, why I like it here. This we do. Fun. We really do like, you know, it's it's a lot of fun. It's relaxed. It's um, And I do have to say that Critical Mass is really an incredible book. Um, you're building on a lot of what you wrote on Delta V. Um, I don't necessarily feel like you needed to read Delta V mm-hmm. in order to get the full gravity of everything. Mm-hmm. But you're exploring a lot of really interesting scientific concepts within critical mass itself. Um, For those of you who like science fiction and like to delve in deep, um, I do have to say you're very similar to, and your style is very similar to Ben Bova or Kim Stanley Robinson, um, Peter Hamilton. You really get into the heart of what makes science fiction you're very heavy in terms of real science. Yes, and that that is
1: a key thing. I, I try to use, actually, I really focus on using real science and technology wherever possible. Uh, part of the goal for this series it which is a planned trilogy, was I wanted to try to answer the question of how do we reach that sci-fi future that we imagine so, so much popular sci-fi, where there's cities, on other planets, or or Neil cylinders, millions and millions of people living in space, and it's this glittering future. How do we reach it from where we stand in the present? And so I kept wondering on that question. I wanted to write a story that bridged that chasm, you know, going step by step with no hand waving, using real technology that we have or is being prototyped now to tell that story. And and I'm happy to say that there is a path to an amazing future. And this is one version of that. This is not the only one, but there, it, I think there's
0: good cause for optimism. Exactly, And, um, but on, at the same time, you do focus a lot on some of the problems that we're facing nowadays. Oh, yeah. We're facing climate change. We're talking about shortage of um, uh, materials and raw materials in order to get us there. How do we get those materials that we need um, to actually uh, not only fix our own planet, but to also get us where we need to go. And this is something that you really delve in deep within critical mass. Yes, and, and that was the key thing,
1: one of the questions that I was asking myself, first of all, and it probably took me about eight years of research, all told, since I first had the idea that I wanted to do this, that was there a path and how could we solve the problems you're talking about? Uh, mass extinction of species, resource depletion, climate change, in the midst of growing conflicts around the world. And that last part wasn't as obvious uh, until around February 24th of last year when the Cold War came back with a vengeance. And we start to see that the world is uh, fractious. In the midst of all that, how can we solve all these problems? And again, reach a positive spot. And one of the things that struck me is by moving heavy industry, moving energy creation and, and obtaining new resources in space, it is compartmentalized from some of the disorder here on earth yeah. and it can it can grow or originate resources that we do not currently have if we're trying to mine more or create more energy on earth it's going to affect someone here and of course mm-hmm. then it's a it's a struggle between how we use land i think probably planting trees to try to remove co2 from the environment is probably a great example it sounds like a wholly noble effort of course until you start to think about, well, th- that may compete with growing food. And, right. and then so you start to have these different stakeholders. What, however, happens if you can beam terawatts of clean energy from geosynchronous orbit? And the thing that I just mentioned there, beaming from uh, solar power satellites, was something that was designed and conceived of back in the 70s, actually in the mm-hmm. 60s, by Peter Glazer and, and Gerard K. O'Neill. I was taking a lot of my cues from really giants like that. These were ideas that were thoroughly explored by NASA and, and examined again in 1998 and found to be credible. I mean, that they would work. But because of the political realities of how it's funded, it was never picked up on. And I wanted to explore what happened if a billionaire did that. And, and also, what would happen if a billionaire launched a near-Earth asteroid mining expedition Using a lot of the sensibilities of a of a Mount Everest climbing expedition, right, and accepting a level of risk that we don't currently accept, because it could alter the trajectory of all of our civilization for the better. It could save billions of lives, and so it, it's really worth it. So that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to marshal again all of these real technologies. Typically, I will go through the the uh, the archives and find old projects that NASA looked at. The mass driver in critical mass is a good example. The design in this book was uh, designed in the early 90s. It was thoroughly vetted. Launching mass from the moon to L2 is something we could do.
0: And it's interesting because you focus a lot on clean energy within this book and some of the pitfalls associated with it one of the things that i you know i'm always concerned about is the fact that we do talk a lot about and i think it's really important to bring in clean energy as much as possible but where is that ethical at the same time because the amount of extraction that we actually have yes. to do for those rare earth metals for instance yes. and the damage that uh, from the land that that we use to extract those metals is can be as damaging as drilling for oil yes
1: yeah you would release a great deal of carbon in the process of strip mining to try to get a hold of cobalt there's also the human rights issues uh, one of the interesting things about the asteroid ryugu from the first book is it has thousands and thousands of tons of cobalt in it right and and that's been uh, confirmed from the essay that was done by the jaxa hayabusa2 mission so that that came back last year that sample and so you start to see we don't have to necessarily ravage the earth to try to completely transform our transportation system. And, and this was discussed by the billionaire who sort of launches everything in motion, Nathan Joyce, in this book, where he brings up the point that the green economy may not be so green. Right. That, that a uh, lithium batteries and other things, If we right now we've got a few percent of people driving around on electric cars, and that is fine. And, of course, electric cars are cool, but if we really scale it up, to everyone using those, then it starts to become a serious problem. So does charging. So does rebuilding the grid. It would have to be several times larger and more powerful than it is now. What does that do to the environment? Uh, How does that change things? So trying to be conscious of those things, um, I wanted to tell the story of what if, again, we availed ourselves of energy that was off the earth. We don't have to dig for all those minerals here. We can create solar power satellites that are very large, thousands of tons, in geosynchronous orbit, each of them beaming about two gigawatts of clean energy to a rectenna on the surface. And a rectenna, all it is is an antenna that receives microwaves. And usually the thing that people say to me that is like, oh, it's a death ray. <laughs> and and there's this, uh, I'm trying to remember his name. There's a scientist who um, works in this field. We use this technology, by the way, for cellular communications. Uh, you can stand in the beam it's about 100 watts per meter you could literally stand in it it's not going to fry anybody and this gentleman he gives his presentations with a device a smaller one beaming on him the entire time he's giving it and it's kind of one of these things like you know oh i'm soaking in it you know as as he's giving his talk uh, but that type of thing a rectenna it it you could have it over crop fields, or pastures, or even over solar panels, because over 90% of sunlight gets through a rectenna, instead it only intercepts microwaves. They're very cheap to build, they're easy to build, and especially in a world that is suffering a great deal of chaos, let's say wildfires, mudslides, uh, people tearing the wiring out to try to get at things, these rectenna's can be easily built and rebuilt, and deployed anywhere. So you could have a solar power satellite in geosynchronous orbit, it could beam its energy anywhere in the hemisphere beneath it. And you could bifurcate that beam, you could send it to different cities. So it's a really flexible green energy source. And I I really do think it's promising.
0: It would be life changing. Yes. It really would. And if we could get the politics out of some of the energy sources, wouldn't it be amazing what we could do? Yes. Um, in terms of critical mass, of course everything does start with Nathan Joyce. Your your um background billionaire. character, billionaire kind gotta of gotta have your, a billionaire, right? You you well, you kinda do. Uh you need somebody who's willing to I mean, I hate to say it, but you know, the East Indian Trading Company was you know, privately funded. That's right. uh, a there was lot a time of the when the Eastern Seaboard was
1: owned by, by the uh, East India Corporation, I
0: believe. Yeah, and uh, it, in order to do some of this uh, work, I really think that it has to go private. We can't necessarily go with the publicly funded, government sponsored um, uh, resources, and so you kind of or the kinda, bureaucracy, or right? the bureaucracy right. exactly.
1: It's funny, when you, when you talk to NASA people individually, and again, I'm not mentioning any specific people, but what you'll find is a lot of uh, passionate, committed people who are working within a bureaucracy, of course they have to, and their funding mechanism is such that even though they want to do certain things, let's say the SLS. The SLS, not designed super efficiently, but it is mm. funded by politicians dividing that – that those the building of the project and the funding over 30 or 40 different districts to make sure that jobs are created in all their districts and that really materially affects the project obviously. The private industry would do that differently. It's just Mm -hmm. how do they fund it and that's where you bring in the billionaires. People who might have a vision for something like like an Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos and want to try to pursue it. Uh, I wanted to create a composite billionaire, a fictional billionaire who perhaps is even more a little uh, risk-embracing. And Nathan uh-huh. Joyce is certainly that. He, in the first story, Delta V, he is the one who funds the first commercial asteroid mining expedition to a near-Earth asteroid, Ryugu. And in 20... Let's see, it's December 13th, 2032 is the date for the trajectory that they take. It's 28 uh-huh. days to this near-Earth asteroid. That's a real trajectory. And so that's, yeah. that's the level I go down to. Uh, so if anybody does want to do that, Please, <laughs> please go do that, because that's a 450 million ton asteroid. And if you get there, uh, again, the Hayabusa 2 mission showed that it has nitrogen, it has ammonia, it has iron, nickel, cobalt, all of these things. It has one twenty thousandth of the gravity of Earth. So it, it's basically a gravel pile in free fall. If you could tease it apart and process and refine the materials, which I, I show how to do in the first book, and bring it back on a trajectory around Earth's moon, a distant lunar retrograde orbit, it would be at the edge of Earth's gravity well and could be used to build enormous constructs, including solar power satellites in space, without having to send up thousands of launches from Earth's gravity well. And thus, you know, if we do that with rockets, especially if we're using methalox, we will be polluting the upper atmosphere with yet more carbon. Uh, and so there's that. So mm-hmm. y- by doing what's called in situ resource utilization, utilizing resources up already up in space. You can have millions of tons without further damaging the Earth's environment. Exactly.
0: And using that delta V trajectory to get the materials back right. to Earth, where that's where you bring in. Not, delta back, to v, Earth, Not back, back to Earth, though. Not back to
1: Earth. Near Earth, cistern or space, yeah. let's say. Because yeah. again, that's a deep gravity well. If you look at a, a gravity well map of the solar system, anytime you have a large planet, you're going to see this deep hole mm-hmm. that you'll have to climb out of. And if you ever see the, the representation of Jupiter, Oh, my God, we're lucky we didn't start on Jupiter. because I don't think we would have been flying yet, much mm-hmm. less a, uh, off the planet. But the moon is, I think it's like 2.5 kilometers per second to escape its gravity well. But these asteroids, you can basically just do a, a, a vigorous push-up, and you're, you're in escape velocity. And so you could mm-hmm. take millions and millions of tons of resources and put them where you need them, again, on the edge of Earth's gravity well, and from that location, You can easily reach comparatively just
0: about anywhere in the solar system. Yeah. And then bring in those materials. Bring more. Now, part of the fun of critical mass is you're bringing in the explorers, those who are willing to live on the edge and actually make um, life better here on Earth. And the sacrifices that inevitably will happen because of uh, exploration, you know, does lead, unfortunately, to death. Um, and that's part of the reality. Um, now, at the beginning of this book, without any spoilers, you lead us to basically what ended up happening at the end of Delta V. Yes. And um, can you give us a little bit of an idea of, of what's happened, where our characters sure. are at?
1: And, and I'll say this because it is on the jacket, so it's not really a spoiler. Uh, the first book, the here, I'll, I'll recap critical mass. It is. It occurs in the late 2030s, where the asteroid miners from the first asteroid mining expedition have returned to Earth, having left behind two of their colleagues at the asteroid of necessity. Mm-hmm. And they have also placed in a distant lunar retrograde orbit the resources they returned. This is thousands of resources, mm-hmm. thousands of tons of resources, sorry. And they want to use those resources to mount a rescue for their compatriots. But during that time, a cold war has started between China and the United States for domination of substitutional space. Mm-hmm. And then there are also some some billionaires who are, are very interested in those resources as well. And that's the source of the conflict in this book. The critical mass I refer to is actually it's a, a multi-dimensional meaning for the title. It is a critical mass that that we're going to need of oxygen, air, all the elements of life in order to make us a celestial species. And gathering these materials will achieve that. But I think the deeper meaning is a critical mass of people, of the public, having the opinion that this is important and meaningful and urgent is part of that. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to fold all of that in together to, to help mainstream readers who may think that space is a boondoggle, that it's not relevant to us all. Given all the challenges you and I just talked about, climate change and resource depletion, it really is urgent that we move with some alacrity to space. Not us, all of us, but our industry, and these explorers that you're referring to. When I started doing research for the first book, I, I have a buddy who is a caver, and he goes on these deep caving expeditions, and he's always been a little different. You know, his, mm-hmm. his perception of danger is just phenomenal to me. Like, I'll get nervous, and he just won't even notice some of that stuff. He's the type of guy who go right to the cliff edge, climb over, test things out. He thinks that cave divers are crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that kind of shows you the spectrum we're talking about here. 100%. There are people who have such, first of all, competence, and then they're confident, competent in their capabilities, and I'll even name Bill Stone as one of them. Bill Stone is a guy who has done some work designing missions for NASA. He is also a renowned cave diver. He designs his own rebreathers that he uses in these. I mean, mm-hmm. this guy is hardcore. And so I was able to communicate with him and my friend to understand the the culture of these cavers. And then again, when you talk to these people, they'll then point to somebody else, like base jumpers, and they, they'll say, you think I'm crazy? Those guys are crazy. Yeah. And so, again, this is the type of thing. I think in a past age, all of these people would have been the explorers, the, you know, the cooks and the, um, you know, the bacons, all these people who would have explored the world. Mm-hmm. But we've discovered the whole world. And so the world has been mapped. So they're finding the edge wherever they can see it. They're diving off buildings. They're racing cars. They're parachuting. And I think what they lack is a frontier. And space is definitely that. And so that's what the billionaire of these books gives them
0: is a frontier. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting because I just talked um, last week with Tom Rob Smith about his new book, Cold People. And he focuses primarily on us trying to survive on Antarctica. Mm -hmm. Um, having been forced to kind of move over. And I think that is one of the few places on Earth that we haven't really um, dug in deep and really gotten into understanding. And um, also, of course, the oceans, you know, what we can do from the oceans. But other than that, for the most part, we have kind of discovered our planet, so to speak. Um, And I think it is really important to understand you know, Antarctica, it's important to understand our oceans, but really we do need to start moving, I think, ourselves out into space. Um, One of the interesting things that you talk about a little bit is the effects of space on the body and some of the dangers that are associated with it. Um, uh, One of your main characters, unfortunately, doesn't come out of there completely unscathed uh, based off of the amount of radiation that he was exposed to.
1: Yeah, so uh, the rigors of space flight are our foremost challenge, and, and usually the objection that's brought up when I talk to scientists about you know the, the plot of the book when I was researching it. And again, it goes back to perception of risk. Uh, these are people, again, who are going to t- try to take every possible step they can to make themselves safe, but knowing that there's a risk. And that mm-hmm. risk, by the way, just so you know, there's two elements of radiation in deep space that are really going to be the problem. So far, the ISS is in low Earth orbit. It's within some of the protection of the Van Allen belts. And so the Earth's magnetic field, uh, it's actually below the Van Allen belts. When you get out into deep space, you have both solar radiation, that is uh, you know, energy coming from the sun, and that can pulse as there is a, uh, an, an electromagnetic pulse from the sun and send trillions and trillions of particles at relativistic speeds towards us. And then there's galactic cosmic rays, which are actually small particles. They can even be heavy particles, just a single atom, Mm -hmm. again, traveling at relativistic speeds, a a considerable fraction of the speed of light. And so that's like a tiny bullet. So a a piece of platinum or titanium, just one atom of it tearing through your DNA, that can accumulate over time. This uh, originates uh, mostly from enormous events like supernova that may have occurred billions of years ago halfway across the galaxy. But it's like a shooting gallery out there in deep space. Exactly. So you want mass to protect you. You want something that would shield you from that. And the, you know, this is a chicken and egg problem. It's like if you're first getting out into space, someone first needs to gather that mass to create a safe refuge for others to follow. And so that's really what they're doing. They're taking a gamble. And this is a gamble that's not unlike climbing Mount Everest or diving into a cave. But I mm-hmm. would say that the reward is possibly altering the trajectory of our entire civilization and making it entirely possible to get to a bright future. So it's worth it to them to do that. And as a result, several people do get cancer uh, in, in this story, the first book. But what's also interesting when I was talking to uh, private space companies is the idea here is they don't want to choose people who are 18 to do these missions. They no. want people who are in their 40s or their, their late 30s because it's unlikely or less likely that they will develop serious cancers by the time they die of old age. But yeah, that that's a, a, a heck of a requirement.
0: It is a heck of a requirement. But at the same time, I think it's sort of interesting because then not only uh, do you have people who are just a little bit older, but also have a certain level of experience, a little bit more yeah. um, understanding of how things are, how they should be. And I always thought this was a really—you mentioned this within your book, and I do have to say that it, it sort of, I was just thinking about it. What happens when we create that first colony out in space, yeah. you know, in terms of politically? You know, if we're tied to the United States, and, but we're several million miles away from the United States, are we really a part of the That's United right. States at that point in time? Yeah. You know, we're, we're essentially colonists, yeah. you know?
1: Well, that's the interesting question. As I started to explore it, what value system are we bringing into space? If we're doing this fast, what's the legal system? What's the political system? What's the economic system? And who's in charge? And now, of course, there are treaties. There's the uh, Outer Space Treaty. There's the Moon Treaty. Not many signatories to the Moon Treaty. Artemis Accords Mm -hmm. have come up, and they are explored quite a bit in critical mass. Uh, They're briefly referred to in Delta V because, of course, the billionaire Nathan Joyce Breaks quite a few laws, Uh, but again, it's part of the uh, better-to-ask forgiveness-than-permission is Mm -hmm. his philosophy, and he is going so far into deep space. It's truly believed to be beyond beyond the reach of law, but when it comes to Moon's orbit, they want to build a permanent space station there with spin gravity. That was one of the things that you were mentioning, what are the rigors of space? What happens to the body in free fall over time has been demonstrated by uh, ISS I think uh, astronaut uh, Scott Kelly or his brother. I always get them confused. Mark Kelly. They're, they're twins, so it's hard to tell them apart. But they proved that the body, both the eyes, the heart muscles, uh, the distribution of blood, so much happens to the body that harms us when we're floating in zero gravity, or I should say microgravity, for a long period of time. And spin gravity, probably all of you are familiar from, from space in you know, Arthur C. Clarke, 2001. If you spin... A space station you can create a uh, artificial gravity or it mm-hmm. seems like gravity but you need at least about 200 meters of radius in order for it not to make you sick when you're moving around now you can have less if you train rigorously and, and my asteroid miners do but the idea is if you got up fast on a let's say we were on a space station and it's spinning and, and we're on a curved floor if I got up fast my head would be in a different gravity uh, level than my feet. And as I got up quickly, the autoliths in my inner ear would say that I'm sick, that I've eaten something. Because we, when we get dizzy like that, it has uh, traditionally been that we've been poisoned. And that's why you get nauseous when you get seasick, because the autoliths are moving in a way that mirror food poisoning. And mm-hmm. so that would happen if you're on too small of a spin gravity ship. But all of these things uh, are part of the dangers, and that's what they're trying to get around by building permanent infrastructure that's very large so that they can then have others follow them and pursue business.
0: I, I was thinking of uh, Larry Niven with the ring world yeah. series and yeah, he does a truly bit, massive, a massive ring and, and gravitational pull. Now these gentlemen I was talking with and uh, they're, they're amazing in terms of uh, Larry Niven has uh, just a profound understanding of physics way past my understanding. Wasn't he? Yeah, he was so, <laughs> a little intimidating talking to these gentlemen who really, really understand, you know, gravitational pull, and and uh, I, I feel like I'm definitely a, a novice when it comes to discussing physics, but it is one of those interesting problems that we have in terms of on the human body. Um, to get in the heart of the matter, uh, you know, we're talking all about the science, and behind it, there really is a thriller as well. Yeah. Um and so uh, can you give us a little bit of a taste of what the thriller is about sure because i i get fascinated behind the science but but you do keep things moving and one of the things i really loved about delta v and critical mass is the fact that they are technically um techno thrillers or with you know some elements of sci fi and and definitely uh, you know you're science fiction heavy, but I w- want to say that you're heavy on the science.
1: Yeah, yeah. What what I'm trying to do, obviously, is I'm I'm trying to tell a story that explores an interesting future. I want to make it readable, though. <clears throat> so I want you to care about the characters. I want you to feel their peril, and and I want to try to compress that to raise the tension. So this part is based in reality. Right now, we are facing a potential struggle for control of, when I say lunar space, that simply means the area around the Earth and the Moon. It's like the local celestial neighborhood. Now there's a lot of talk about colonizing Mars, I'll set that aside for now. Uh, the key issue uh, in any two-body system, you know, the Earth and the Moon, the Sun and, and the Earth, but specifically the Earth and the Moon right now, there are five what are called Lagrange points. These are Areas of equal gravity, essentially, more or less, where if you put something in those areas, it'll stay there. And they're very strategically important because anything else, you're going to have to constantly expel uh, propulsion or propellant in order to keep it in place. But these are relatively stable spots, and they're a likely point of contention for anyone who wants to control this two body system. And right now, uh, the US and China are sort of heading towards a collision there because, of course, we have. Competing belief systems. And that is the second problem I I wrapped into the conflict of the story, which is authoritarianism versus representative democracy. And this part is not fiction. This is going to become real in in just a few years. So I wanted readers to understand it. I wanted them to experience that potential conflict. And again, it's not even warfare. What it is is maneuvering. It's trying to prepare and find the people who can get you there first to try to preserve some control over the future. And, and again, you know, the representative democracy, uh, if, if we're facing a diametrically opposed belief system that has an enormous amount of mass and energy, well, that could affect us for thousands of generations. Mm-hmm. So right there, and that's just one element of the conflict of the story. There's also the, the legal aspects of who to whom do you look uh, for recourse if you have a disagreement with somebody? Is this uh, might makes right in space? Uh, that type of thing. And all of that, you factor in individuals, companies, other rival billionaires, perhaps trying to hamstring each other to try to preserve whatever privilege or investment they've already made. So that's part of what I was folding into the story. And again, I do think these things will be real issues of conflict. And and part of that is is solved, if not resolved, by the the courage of the heroes, the, the protagonists of the story, who are trying to achieve, in this case, finishing a, a spacecraft that's capable of rendezvousing with the asteroid that they left as it comes nearby Earth again. Now, in four years' time, so there's a four-year time lock, again, a real time lock, the asteroid Ryugu is coming around at that exact time, it's 2042 in this book, and they have to finish, first of all, obtaining millions of tons of mass refining it and turning it into a spacecraft more capable than any spacecraft ever built in time to rendezvous with that asteroid to rescue their colleagues, all while two superpowers are messing with them, yeah. uh, as well as billionaires. And there's also the social media conflict, economic conflict, and everything else going on while climate change is raging back on Earth. Right. So, yeah, there's a little, a little yeah. stuff
0: going on. Uh, just a few things. One of the things that... Um, Basically, I feel like Critical Mass is probably your best book you've written. Oh, um, thank you. I think I it's think. it's an incredibly deep book, and this is not this isn't a book that you're going to sit down and read in an afternoon. This is something that you're going to take a little bit of time with and, and think about a bit. And, like it's exactly. going to stay with
1: you. That's part of what I wanted to do,
0: and and it does. It forces you to stop and think. You know, um, I really enjoyed the fact that you really, uh, for instance, you have some great. Um, uh, diagrams within your book discussing, for instance, the moon's orbit. Um, I had a little pity on my own. So figured, <laughs> you know. And But this took you a while to write. This took you about four years to write uh, fully from beginning to end after Delta V, approximately. Yeah.
1: yeah, and that was partly due to being pulled away from other things, uh, some of it other mediums, but mostly, you're right, it was the research. Yeah. Maybe a little of the pandemic.
0: Um, uh, you know the pandemic slowed down a lot of writers i think yeah. you, know, you would think
1: it wouldn't because it's like you're stuck in the house but you know it's kind of hard to to suspend disbelief when you're like i wonder if anybody's going to be left to read this
0: exactly <laughs> <laughs> right
1: it'll it'll distract you
0: i think i think that's one of our biggest challenges you know uh and it took a while for people to feel comfortable coming on out for instance uh for events which uh you know, which is nice. We've we're finally getting back to our old numbers that we had. I think cool. it took about a year to do that. But in terms for writers, it slowed down a lot of people because of that 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 drainage that happened with everything that was going around. Um, but yet, you know, I think really what slowed you down was a little bit of the research Definitely. because this is Definitely. this is a heavy book in terms of the amount of research that you need to do to, make that accessible. to do it right. Yeah.
1: I wanted to get it right, I wanted to make it accessible, uh, so I had to understand it first because, again, this is the masochism I was going through, it's like, okay, for this book I need to understand orbital mechanics, some rocket science, some economics, blockchain, uh, poly- various political systems, the legal regime in space that's being proposed, all of that stuff, and I had to sort of put it in a structure that I could access it while I'm dramatizing characters in a story. So yeah. <laughs>
0: You know, and you were a systems analyst before, so you kind of had that brain of breaking down complex information into relatable um information to to people, to the layman, for instance. Um, I think that you really needed to use those skills to break down this book because there is so much that's going on and yet it's uh it's told so well. Well, Um Did you learn from Demon and from uh, Freedom and maybe some of your other works on how to kind of break this down? Because this is not... I don't think you could have gone out right no, away and written this book. A debut novel of this? No. Yeah,
1: No, I don't think so. I definitely did with my first book, Demon. So this is circa 2006, slightly rewritten for 2008 when Penguin Random House published it. Um, that book was complex, but it was a complexity. It was... Uh, a cyber war, narrow AI book. But then again, mm-hmm. I'd been coding for 17 years. I was intimately familiar with a lot of the systems in that personally. Now, for example, uh, I'm not intimately familiar with flying spacecraft and things like that. So I really had to lean on talking to physicists and astronauts and other people like that. For example, the physiology of space. Jim Logan, uh, who was the former flight surgeon for the shuttle program, he was very gracious to give me advice about what happens again to to a person in space. Uh, over time and short term, I had to lean a lot more on experts, understand what they're telling me, read it back to them to make sure I'm getting it right, and then incorporate it in the story. And that was that part of the process, I didn't have to do with Damon as much mm-hmm. because I, I intimately understood. It. And the other thing was at that time, I wasn't a full-time novelist. I, you know, I was doing it as a sideline, almost a hobby, or let's just say therapy you know i was writing the book to to kind of work through something i was very interested or concerned about and that's how that came about and so it was much more personal but yeah i couldn't start with a book like critical mass or even delta v i because i think i needed a few books under my belt so that the physical act of structuring a story creating the characters were not added to the weight as a new task like i was familiar with all of that and i could take on these new challenges in addition
0: so where does it for you where does the art come in versus setting aside some of the science
1: yeah that is always a struggle right i what i tend to do is i write i solve that problem by writing two books and then i cut 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 ruthlessly i just i i I found that by not chaining myself up too much while i'm writing it i mean i follow a structure i try to really pace the book well but I write fat in the sense that I know that I'm going to cut some things, but I'm going to let it cool off before I decide what to cut. Because when I see it, in it as a whole, then I can, I can figure out what can go and what cannot. And, I, and unfortunately, I do not know what that is until it's done. And mm-hmm. so I really wish I could skip that part where I write an extra 50,000 words. <laughs> uh, that would be super swell. But yeah, it's a, I consider it scaffolding uh, that I'm pulling away as I've right. written the entire story. And some people ask me, oh, I'd like to see that. It's like, no, no, you wouldn't.
0: <laughs> the uncut, unedited yeah, author's edition. exactly. No,
1: it's cut for a reason. Uh,
0: and it does take a village. So with your editor, I mean, how much does your editor play now into telling you to cut certain things or to tighten certain things? Uh, do, they, do they ever give you a hard time? Hard time, no. Actually, I, I've, I've had three different editors. Three?
1: Yeah, I think three. I had i trying to remember. I think, Michelle, can you recall, I think I had a different editor for Delta V than I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I did. What happened was there was a changeover ed- due to a change in their life circumstance. They, they moved out of the country at the time. Uh, so I had a different editor for critical mass than I did for Delta V. We followed much the same, uh, path. I know when I turn in a first draft that it is big mm-hmm. and my previous editors also knew that. So when they got, it, it's like, okay, I know he's going to cut it down. Uh, But here it is. It's done. And I think my new editor, that was uh, maybe didn't know that right out of of the gate. Like, what the heck is this? Uh, So the doorstop I sent and then uh, had to inform them that I'm, of course, going to cut it down. And that that process took a little while. And eventually we were on the same page, literally. So it worked out. No drama, though.
0: But it is, and sometimes you have to cut your darlings, and you have to, to yeah, be a it little William ruthless. Goldman? Yeah, kill, yeah.
1: kill your darlings or babies. Yeah, it's... yeah. I just, I can uh... think of one chapter in particular that I cut that still just pains me, uh, and should I even say it? Because uh, yeah, it doesn't really occur in the book, and I'm not able to use it. But there was a an airship scene. There was a a particular individual in the story. He was a a NASA engineer who had worked all of his life designing concepts to be built in, in space, none of them ever built. So he had retired, and he had this opportunity, he thought, to have some investors who were interested in a patent that he owned. And he was going to this address, and when he arrives there, it is an empty field. And he's like, son of a bitch. Why didn't I check it on Google Earth? Why, I, I'm being hoodwinked somehow. And at that point, an airship arrives and lands, and then they invite him on board. So they gave him those coordinates so that he would show up and pull them and then have a, a boardroom meeting in this airship that is owned by a billionaire. Oh, that I couldn't get all the characters in the right spot, so I cut it. I thought it was a really cool visual scene, but uh, judging by the reaction here, it's good I cut it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but it, it excited you in the process of doing it at the time, thing, and that, at the the problem, time right? exactly. Well, you know, writing by committee, uh, oh, probably right. not always the oh, best no, thing to yeah. do. Um, in terms of, um, uh, authors who have kind of uh, guided you—do um, you have any in particular that you you're very fond of in terms of? Sure, because uh, of course I have to
1: read too. Um, I've always liked the work of Kim Stanley Robinson, going back to the Mars trilogy and Galileo's uh-huh. Dream. Uh, Neil Stevenson, oh God, and uh, John Dos Passos. I mean, other other right. uh, genres. I was an English literature major, and that's my degree, so I've read widely. And I have broad tastes, and I tend to enjoy uh, novelists who are also not in my genre, because mm-hmm. then I can just enjoy them. You know, when, you, when you're when you reading a thriller, uh, you mm-hmm. tend to start to think, well, okay, how would I structure that? And it can kind of take you out of the story somewhat. But I do appreciate Kim. Uh, his... Adherence, again, he'll, Mars Trilogy is probably a great example of digging deep into the science and technology. Oh, yeah. uh, Cryptonomicon, Niels Stevenson, Snow Crash, too.
0: Snow Crash was, was wonderful. Although I've got to say for Kim Stanley Robinson, my, my favorite of his is Aurora, which is oh, all about the... Um, we should talk about that. Yeah, I, I really loved uh, the idea of the dark, ship. Dark, dark, though. It's, it's dark, but the ship is the unreliable narrator. Um, I thought that that was sort of a fascinating take in terms of and talk about you know what do we do when we do a a, a big mission into deep space over generations in a generation. Can I ship. summarize it real quick? Sure, so, absolutely. So
1: I, I won't give away anything. So, uh, but it is a, about a a generational starship that is that is traveling to a distant star, and what happens to the denizens the the people on this and there's thousands and thousands of people on this ship, and when things are not as they expect. So what happens yeah. if all of this planning encounters the unexpected and things that they cannot solve and you can't get back necessarily. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a, it's a dark story.
0: It is a dark story, but it's, it's, it's well read. It's, sure. uh, it's, well, it's well written writing. in. And, um, I, I actually thought a lot of Neil Stevenson's seven eaves when I was reading through critical mass a little okay.
1: bit, uh, he definitely <clears> goes into the science of space there. Uh, Goes a little further out,
0: yeah. Pages of math, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And which, Neil which Stevens, I can, and yeah. I
1: can I think uh, that, that's cool. I dig uh, that. But yeah, yeah
0: minority a little hard. Just you know, saying every time I saw pages of math <laughs> that I got to read through. Um, uh, I think I'm. But one there's of the, a huh. twist in this formula yeah. right here. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 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 and and with critical mass what I really like is that you know I can give this to a science fiction reader or I can give it to a thriller reader and both are going to be equally um uh equally enjoy it I think I think Well that's that what I'm trying
1: to do I'm trying to make it accessible and interesting I mean the idea of understanding what the com- compounds are in lunar regolith and why that relates to you and why that can be really awesome you know there's there's Many popularizers of science, Carl Sagan, uh, yeah. you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson, the people can really make very technical scientific things super interesting. Now, I'm not at that level, but I am trying to make these complex, nuanced scientific issues relevant to a mainstream reader so yeah. that they know, again, that this leads to a cool mm-hmm. future, potentially. And that's why you should care about
0: it. Well, I, I'm going to disagree with you on the fact okay. that I do think that you make science cool, oh, cool. Um, which is nice. Um, I think that that is one of the um, highlights of it. Now, this this week, you and your wife, Michelle, were able to actually do a little bit of a tour of Arizona State University, yep. and you're going to see some things that not many people got to see. Can you share a little bit oh, of sure. that with us?
1: Yeah, they were very gracious. Uh, uh, Michael Crow, the president of the university, helped arrange this tour uh, for us. I say one one of the highlights, because there were several, but realizing that I'd spent years writing about asteroid mining and now lunar regolith mining to be able to get into the meteorite vault and hold meteorites. uh, I mean, solid pieces of iron that, you know, look small, but just weigh like 40 or 50 pounds. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was found in this area. And looking at the amazing patterns, just the beauty on the inside of like almost like diamonds and crystalline forms. And then also a carbonaceous chondrite of the exact type that it would be found on Ryugu. To be able to hold that you know, with rubber gloves, of course. I, I know, I sound super nerdy right now, but that was a really cool thing. And the other aspect was meeting with various artists and technologists and scientists there who are all working together. There's a really interesting interdisciplinary structure at ASU. You know, a lot of elite universities, and I don't want to say that it's stovepipe, but it's much more specialized, at least traditionally. And it mm. seems that there, that everyone's talking to everyone else and interacting on on projects together. Again, artists and technologists and scientists mm. together. I thought that was really fascinating, and I got to see some of those projects.
0: Well, one of my all-time favorite books is um, um, it's uh, James Watson's The Double Helix which is a really wonderful book about the scientific method because he talks about his and Crick's investigation of DNA and how many people it actually took to come together to actually solve the challenge of determining what the shape of DNA really was. And he gives a lot of credit to a lot of scientists Fantastic. in Oxford and, and Cambridge to help discover, discover this. It's a wonderful, wonderful memoir if, if you're ever interested in reading something like that but it does it takes a village and it takes a lot of disciplines to actually bring that together and i know that asu is uh, you know foremost um engineering school and, and part of of uh, didn't they build the i want to say part of the mars rover oh yeah yeah
1: yeah they were, they were showing us that yeah again that was one of the things and then of course there's the psyche mission coming up and and looking at that uh, a mock-up of it on the ceiling Again, mm-hmm. uh, there, there are so many things that it, it was hard to, to you know, remember them all at once, but that's just one small corner of it. So there's a lot happening here. It's very impressive.
0: There really is. And for those of you who are wondering why we're not getting into the heart of critical mass, it's because we don't want to spoil too much either, because there is an awful lot going on.
1: It is a thriller.
0: It is, and if you haven't read Delta V, um, I do say you know definitely pick up and read Delta V, but it isn't necessary, Um, and I think I'm going to give you kudos for that because not many thriller writers and not many science fiction writers are able to write series books where you're able to start in the middle and know what's going on.
1: Well, part of the reasoning for that was also um, having returned from their asteroid mining expedition, which was unsanctioned, almost everyone on earth didn't even know they left. And so that gave me an entree for other people to to become familiar with them and what they had accomplished. So that could bring the reader up to date in in a way that mirrored everyone else on earth. So that made it easier.
0: Yeah. And it's a brilliant book. Really, really a brilliant book. I'm going to open it up to Q&A from the audience, both online and here in, in house. Don't be
1: shy. Oh, thanks. You speak, um, yeah, So one question is on asteroid mining. You basically got like three options for how to do it: just like unmanned factory, mm-hmm. manned, you know, mission like you did, and then like grab the asteroid, bring it back around. Yeah. So the question is, why did you choose the manned mission? And then sub question is like, when we finally like crack this, how do you think they're going to do it? Okay. Oh, that's a great it's question, style, so. and and that what made it. I don't have to repeat the question because people should have heard it.
0: So essentially, the question boils down to: um, for those of you who are online, you might not have heard it. Um, basically, how are we going to? I'm going to butcher this. So I apologize. Oh, I for could try to recap question. it. Why so not? So you're
1: saying that? Do I think a robotic mission would be the approach? Man mission, uh, or should we harness an asteroid and bring it back? Was the first question correct? Yeah. Kind Okay. Why you chose the one for the story. Okay. The question like. So why did I choose one for the story? and lastly, what do I actually think will happen? Correct. All right. So this was interesting to me. Uh, again, I consulted all sorts of experts, and it's very weird because where I live in Pasadena, there's actually asteroid mining companies. There's startups. Uh, there's off-world robotic companies. I mean, it's near Caltech and JPL. Uh, as a matter of fact, when I was doing the research, I, I kept marveling about the fact that I didn't have to get on a plane to talk to these people. I just happened to live in this area, and maybe that's why I'm writing the book. I don't know. But the the idea of only using robots, very quickly what came up was if anything goes wrong, if you guess wrong, and, of course, NASA has done an amazing job. You look take a look at the rovers. They have so carefully thought things through that they very rarely have a critical critical failure that's just loss of mission and however asteroid mining where you're really doing heavy duty industrial work on space if you get anything wrong especially having sent something out to a distant asteroid that you know you have these what are often referred to as keyholes in the orbit has a very, very high energy requirement and a long time to reach the asteroid until it gets very close by Earth, and that may occur only rarely. So you have that one opportunity to send your mission out, and if you automate it and you have robots doing the mining and it goes great, the idea is by the time it comes around again, you'll be sending resources back. But if anything goes wrong, it's all for naught. Mm -hmm. And then the temptation then is to say, well, if you could send people— and you don't get everything right, you could then correct the problem. And the fact is, we could iterate far more quickly. It's not just about that mission. It's about how many missions can humanity send to this asteroid or that, a- that asteroid? What if we sent the ability to modify the mission on the fly? Mm-hmm. And remember also that it's gonna be so distant often from Earth that you're gonna be talking hours of, of time. You can't in real time communicate with these machines. You can't remotely control them. There's just too much of a delay. So what the billionaire in the first book dealt to be Nathan Joyce, what he did was uh, he found adventurous people, and he also particularly found one asteroid, and this is a real asteroid, where it goes away for four years and comes back. So they're in deep space for four years, and then again, they return close to Earth, and they have an opportunity to leave again. But while they're working during that four years, they can send robotic uh, tugs back towards Earth on very long, slow trajectories that a human can't do three years in deep space, but a tug filled with just refined resources can. So they're sending it back, and the reason they used people was, again, all of the unexpected problems they encountered. Now, in that first book, there was another billionaire that sends only robots, and they do not succeed for that reason. And what was funny, I, I thought I'd, I did pretty well with that when Bill Stone, again, he he was the CEO of Shackleton Energy. This is a off-world lunar mining company said, you know, sending the people, if you could do that, that's a better idea. If you can do that, if you can find the people and the will to do it, because of that, you can iterate. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as bringing an asteroid back, boy, there's going to be some, some concerned neighbors if you do that. Uh, depending on the size of the asteroid, it's like, oh, we had an engine failure. Funny thing, it's heading to, no. That people are not going to be thrilled. Now, there was an asteroid return mission mm. that was going to return a much smaller asteroid, and this was a NASA mission, and they started prototyping it. You can find pictures online. I think it's called the Asteroid Return Mission. You can see the pictures of it, and the design of that that probe that was going to grab or grasp the asteroid and then redirect it and head back towards the moon and put that in a, in a lunar orbit so that we could bring it closer to us to study, and it was. It had its funding pulled. It had its funding pulled at the last minute, which is a shame, but what I did in the first book is I repurposed that design to use them and, and called that the grasshoppers, I think, in the first book, so that they, that's the device they're using to tease boulders away from the asteroid. Because the other thing is that mining an asteroid in space is wholly different from mining here on Earth. You are essentially trying to mine a... a cluster of gravel that's in free fall in an irradiated vacuum that is alternately boiling hot and freezing cold. I mean, it's a very difficult environment to mine something. If you start striking things, they'll scatter all over the place, and you'll never see them again. And so, again, speaking with uh, various experts on how one would do this, and I, I depict this in delta V, they tease a boulder away from the surface. It requires very little energy. I'm trying to remember the exact amount. I'll probably get it wrong and people will yell at me in the comments. But when I was talking to a physicist about this, when you are talking about the gravitational attraction of that mass of gravel, if you will, and you have a 60-ton boulder, it takes you know tens of kilograms of energy. It's slow, steady pressure to pull it away because you have almost no gravity. And if you can tease it away and then put it in a terminator orbit, you bag it and you start to, to process it, in this case with uh, focused sunlight. You spall the surface... You have the volatiles boil off. And yes, I do go into considerable detail about that. Hopefully, it is interesting to the reader because at that point, it is life or death. If they can achieve this, they can get back home. They can survive. And so it is – so that's why I chose that. And what do I think will ultimately be done? I do think that there is a possibility that NASA or, or someone else will bring a small asteroid back towards the moon to study it. That's not going to be enough mass to change things. I do think the NEOWAS mission that's going out soon from NASA, which will scan for n- uh, near-Earth asteroids that we do not know about now. Because mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know how often you see in the news that, oh, suddenly a, an asteroid has come out of nowhere and it's hurtling past the Earth. Very often that's become, that's because we don't see asteroids coming from the direction of the sun. We can't easily detect them. So what we need is a probe that can go away from the Earth and scan around with infrared to start to see these very dark rocks, because this is a lot of carbon. It has a very low or high, I think it's low albedo. So it's difficult to spot, and spotting them into infrared is easier. They think there could be half a million of them. Now, hopefully, none of them are bigger than a kilometer, because something like that hitting us out of the sun with little warning would be terrible. I'm so happy for Planetary Defense that they've decided to fund this and launch this, although I should knock wood, because it isn't launched yet, and it has been canceled before. And I think it's 2025. Maybe somebody there can determine it. But that will do two things. It'll help to protect the Earth for all of us, and it will also help to prospect, to basically say, here are all of these asteroids, and here are their trajectories. How many are going to come close enough that it would make sense to send people to go and perhaps do this mission and how often will they return and with a half a million to choose from we might have some very interesting candidates more so than just for you
0: just curious from the audience how many have been over to meteor crater up north by flagstaff i mean just amazing how much uh you know and that was a small that yeah, was a that was small a small, one. small one that yeah. created uh i the think meteor the caribbean crater. is a large one yes yeah. <laughs> caused a few problems 65 problem. million years ago yeah.
1: the dinosaurs had no space program
0: <laughs> yes sir
2: you, you've referred several times to lots of different experts
1: yes that you use use i i don't like that i use i don't use experts <laughs> did
2: you stalk these people did you
1: did i stalk?
2: Them? them in coffee shops how did you get in touch with-
1: yeah, so uh, how do I get access to the to the experts that I talk to? Uh, this is uh, the benefit of having written Damon, quite frankly. What happened was the first book that I wrote became a New York Times bestseller, and it gave me access to people who loved that book, and many of whom had really interesting professions and would email me or, or write me or meet me somewhere at some event and say, oh, I really love this book. And I would start to talk and they'd ask what I was working on and or they said what they did and I found it interesting and I would get in touch with them. So it's very often referred to that writing is a lonely profession. But in this case, having written that book really connected me to thousands and thousands of people who were willing to help and interested in my work. So when I contacted them, they'd respond. And I'm always amazed, actually, when I, I say, hey, I'd like to tour... The National Ignition Facility, for example, it, it sounds weird. It's that, that fusion experiment uh, that looks like a James Bond villain layer, uh, but it's not. Uh, really cool, getting an opportunity to see things like that, or, or the meteor, Meteorite Vault at uh, ASU, uh, or NASA uh, facilities, all of that stuff. Uh, it's having written and people knowing what you write really helped a lot. But I'm sure if you ask the right question at the right time, you could get access to. To, to various people. Just just trying
0: can't hurt. I, th- I thought I saw a question over here. No. Awesome. Uh, one, sure. One Damon question, and then get back to Chris. OK, sure. Why do you think Damon struck such nerve with people? Like Why are you connected hey. with so many people?
1: Why did my first book, what's that? Because it was awesome. Oh, OK. Well, see, I can't say that. Uh, Besides that. Well, I think because it was relevant and unexpected and accurate, and why why did my first book, Demon, struck a strike a nerve? Uh, I will say this: I knew it was going to be weird when I self published it, and then it started to be handed around technology uh, companies, you know, very quickly and started to grow. And I think in May two thousand seven, Wired magazine did an article on it, and then it truly went crazy, and. Then at some point, somebody in the Defense Department got in touch with me because they were concerned, you know, we can't think why this scenario you described can't happen. And and then uh, I do remember giving a speech somewhere where I started by saying, if I'm the expert at this, we are really screwed. Uh, (laughs) But you know, it just comes down to having worked in IT as a consultant, uh, what I was working on were logistics systems, pre-production planning systems. So what would happen is the software that I helped develop would decide whether a truck, a train, uh, a ship would move a certain product at a certain time. And as it turns out, there's a great deal of power involved in that. And I started thinking about all the single points of failure in the system that we've devised that powers the world in in transportation and communications and energy, SCADA systems, for example. And it turns out there's a great many single points of failure, or at least there used to be far more. I think we're more cognizant of it now. I think the scenario in Damon was that, you know, in this case, what happens if you have somebody who has put a whole bunch of narrow AI triggers in to start to take apart the modern world? And also, they're not alive, so you can't stop them or threaten them or arrest them. And and part of that actually came out of another odd aspect, which was uh, I had various weird hobbies at the time. One of which which was I was writing a... a a program for D and D players, and it was a program called Weathermaster. And it, this was I was just doing as a sideline, and it created fictional weather for fictional worlds. And it had an orbital mechanics mod- module in it where it could calculate the sunrise and set. It was designed. <laughs> but is what I'm saying. But it, it was damn good. Uh, if you Google it, you'll. I, I did that under the the uh, the fake name. Uh, oh, should I not tell? No, never mind. I won't say the name, as I might use it again. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, you, don't Google it. Don't listen to this man. <laughs> uh, so this program, WeatherMaster, I designed it just to give you an idea of how over-designed it was. I put a polymorphic encryption wrapper around it so you could try it for 30 days. But if you ever copied it, it would re-encrypt itself. And so uh, anyway, long story short, you could buy it. And then I got very busy on a, a Y2K remediation project and didn't get back to it. And by the time I got back to it, it had made all this money for me. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. And so I had it set up so it paid for the website, paid for the advertising. And I thought, God, if I got hit by a bus, this thing would just keep going. And I started to relate that to some of the other ideas that I had. I said, gee, you know, if I could do this while I'm dead, what else could you do in the modern world if you're dead? And it turns out about 75% of what you normally do. So that's really where that story came from. And I think the reason it was relevant and it it made an impact on people was because it was surprising. I had a guy in in intelligence capacity who said, your book seems absurd to me. But then when I think of all the individual elements one by one, they're all possible. And I realized, oh, my gosh. And I think that's why it it caught on. And and then also part of the themes, you know, the first book tears down the world, the second book builds it back up with more
0: resilience. Yes. At the time it seemed like yep. it was way ahead of its time
1: Yeah, the, time. the, the uh, appreciation of corporate Unaccountable corporate yeah. power And the history of it uh, That was very, uh, an honest assessment of it So yeah, that, that also might have had a lot to do with it So there was a lot in that book that, that was from the heart I, I suppose that's the, the number one thing Is if you write uh, from your heart And you write honestly And you do your homework That does a lot of the work for you Right there
2: Actually, I don't know I'm sure I did this uh, before everybody else, but I've already read the book. Thank I you. you ago when it came out. Cool. And by the way, my reading rate for him is about 30 pages an hour because it can't go any faster than that. And reading two hours a day, what I like about you is that you don't talk down to anybody.
1: I do not. No. Yeah, I do not talk down to sometimes anybody. Are, what did you say? <laughs> Fair enough. I have to do that sometimes when I'm writing it.
2: But it was uh, the, and prior to that. I re-read Delta V. So I've had a two week of Daniel Swart.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My apologies. <laughs>
2: but um and I think that I re-read Delta V and I got a lot more out of it. In the
1: oh, bless you. I love you that.
2: Know? So and then it was an easy transition over to Critical
1: Mass. Cool. That's great. But, um, and I, so I you could captain an asteroid mining ship at this point. I could. I could call yeah. uh, Mr. Sparky. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You have a lot of people in this book. I do. You have some primary characters, some secondary characters. And it just boggles my mind how you keep track of all of the particular aptitudes of all of these yeah. people. I mean, you have. Kobe, I love this question. Good.
1: Yeah. But keeping, I mean,
2: what is this guy doing? You're coming back to me 50
1: pages. And a what's page the personality of that person? Yeah. And to me, that just just
2: sort of went over my head. Again,
1: of no, I can tell you the answer to that. And, and, and I, this is why I love the question is because I actually, I typically have a certain number of characters in, in a book. This one had quite a few characters who come and go. They have a core group of characters. But for instance, the asteroid training sequence, there are dozens of people. And you want to have it be so that you don't know who is going to be selected. And you don't know. And what I literally did was uh, the human mind? I I find, and in, in, uh, you know, it, it is a fact, right, that we can process graphical information much more quickly. So what I did was I found faces of individuals, whether they be actors or business people, to represent these characters, and I put them up on a board next to their name with the brief stats of who they were, and that gave me a feel of who they were. So when I glanced at them, I could say, okay, I know who I'm writing for this person right now. And that's what I did at that point in the story so I could keep track of all these people. I think if I just had a little paragraph for each one of them, it would have been impossible. Uh, This way, we, well, right now in this room, uh, I have a sense for all of you, and there's quite a few faces here. It really helps to have that graphical uh, representation of just the human face. And I think we've been evolved to be able to process information of a human face. So that's what I did. Okay, two things. And then next, what is your next book going to be about? Okay, well, two interesting questions. So do I hope that this is adapted for a movie? I suppose every every author does that. I've had a number of film deals uh, over the years. Uh, I've read a number of script adaptations from various studios for my books. And that's an interesting process. Uh, I will say they develop far more material than they actually shoot, about 20 Mm -hmm. times that amount. So I'm realistic about that. I have a, a project in process right now. I wonder how much I can talk about that. Um, I should probably look at NDAs before I even talk about that. But I have one of my project, one of my stories is being adapted right now. We'll see if it works. Again, you, you, it, it's, a diffi- it's a difficult thing to take a novel and turn it into a two-hour movie. So mm-hmm. it's really important to understand as a novelist that it's gonna change. <laughs> to be okay with that, if you want it to be turned into a movie. Now, if it's a long-form TV series, I think there's much more chance for it to successfully undergo that transition. And I've done a number of TV deals, too, uh, during the profusion of television that that we've had. I think that's starting to recede somewhat, uh, so there's less of those deals. So do I hope that it gets turned into a movie? I would prefer it as a TV show. Uh, Because you need that running room. I don't think you're going to be able to turn this into a two or even a two and a half hour movie. I think you need, you know, 10 hours for the first uh, book to really go into it. I think it could be really gripping. You know, we've did a number of pitches to a number of channels. Uh, Very often the response by some of these is, well, we already have a space show. And that always cracks me up because I think, well, do you have a drama as well? Uh You know, we're getting to the point where space is going to become part of our society. I mean, look at cell phones, right? Cell phones used to be a big deal in a, in a show, it used to be a plot element. Now it's just the background. It's part of our lives. It's in, and I think space will become that. As a matter of fact, when it does become that, that's actually going to be a good thing. And hopefully millions and millions of people, adventurous, uh, ambitious people, will be going to space and hopefully making life here on Earth better and then space will just be if there's a space film you just say it's in space it's just another location for uh, instead of sci-fi so so that's the goal so i do hope they turn it into a show because that would meet, reach more people maybe people who, who don't read long-form fiction uh, for whatever reason that would be interesting and i think you had one other question what was well, what's your next? Yeah, what's, what's my next book right now? Now, I, I do want to do this as a trilogy. Now, is that the very next thing I don't know? You know, we'll see. I'm probably gonna be writing things concurrently. I, it's not gonna be four years delay before the next book. Uh, that was partly, partly due to the state of the world and some other things I was doing at the time. And also the extreme challenge that this re- book represented. Remember, what I was trying to do and what I set out to do by starting this trilogy was where we are standing here in the present how do we get to an amazing future where mm-hmm. millions and millions of people are in space? We have solved climate change, we have we have solved some fundamental problems with humanity, possible extinction, for example, avoided that. And I'm sure we'll have new problems, challenges, but how do we get there from here? And so I feel like I'm two-thirds of the way through that journey, and I think the I've got a good handle on the last part, so it shouldn't take four years to do.
0: I was actually, just thinking a Night Rider when you first see the cell phones, the giant bricks, <laughs> the bricks. You, I mean, the great thing the, is you could, yeah, throw it you, could, you could throw it at a grizzly. You could throw it at a, and it
1: would stun them.
0: Or, or a cocaine bearer, for instance. Oh uh, yeah, um, you're not kidding. That's a movie. Yeah, now. yeah, that is the movie. Um, I and uh, to see it in terms of uh, sales. I think most authors are excited just to do the television or the movie deal. Because uh you get paid. Oh, you do get paid.
1: That's true. Every time you do an option, (laughs) I forgot to mention that part. Yeah. So it hasn't been long suffering or anything like that. Yeah. It's uh it's very helpful and I do appreciate it in the sense that uh seeing a screenwriter try to adapt things, you know, very often I've had really positive interactions with them. I have an appreciation for what they have to deal with because again, you're trying to boil down a complex story. I have some running room, you know you got 120 pages double space it's like you know take that book turn it into that's tough so
0: we had a young adult novelist who was also a um, show writer for Arrow oh okay uh, for the CW and so we talked a lot about you know how ma- how many writers does it take to write an episode <laughs> and uh, it's it's unreal the number of of people she worked with 12 to 13 people yeah. per episode to write an hour long. And then there's producers. Exactly. There was a
1: joke, actually, I heard living in Los Angeles. This is going to get me in trouble, but how many producers does it take to screw in a light bulb? Does it have to be a light bulb?
0: (laughs) Patrick, it looks like you got a question online. (laughs)
1: Ha, <laughs> <laughs> ha, yeah. Okay, so, uh, I do I have to repeat that you were right next to a microphone, right? Yeah, I, they probably yeah. picked up the question. Uh, so, did I consult any other experts? Um, uh, yes, I did, and again, the cavers is probably one of the best examples of people who aren't scientists. I mean, these are these are people I cannot go follow them as they're going about their daily tasks, so I don't want to get anywhere near that, but talking how they live what their culture is like even when they're not caving how they interact with each other it's it's like a tribe of people that i don't want to say alien but they are powered by something that i really wanted to capture that is an example of a group that was there were not scientists although man's a lot of them had incredible technological capabilities for saturation diving and everything being able to calculate uh, partial pressure of oxygen in an emergency when their own brain is starved of oxygen. Really f- phenomenal individuals. Uh, I don't know, coders, they're not scientists. Uh, blockchain figures somewhat in this story. It's a somewhat important thing. Understanding uh, cryptocurrencies and blockchain systems beyond the hype, beyond the Ponzi schemes and all sorts of other things happening to try to understand what the fundamental elements of that are, and I do think they're important technologies, Mm -hmm. Uh, not scientists, um, bothering uh, space lawyers and people like that, and of course that's sort of, it was an unofficial designation when I started these books, and it's becoming more and more formal, Uh, being space specialists. I don't think you could easily have a major law firm doing that uh, when I first began these, so that's an example of a non-science person, and the other thing is there really is no settled space law yet. So it is a burgeoning field. Uh, you're going to be originating new law in space, I think, in a big way as more people get up there.
0: You've you've introduced us to some space lawyers, though. That's right. The better
1: the the uh, Saul Goodman of space uh, yeah. <laughs> is in this book, especially in the first book. He is willing to do anything to make sure they get uh, into space. Oh, so absolutely. Good, you got to have a good lawyer if you're going to okay. be an asteroid miner. Uh, and and what was the other question? There was. Uh, <laughs> So, would I ever write elements of satire like that? A uh, really cool film, by the way. Uh, I actually have written satirical pieces before. I did one, what was the name of that? It, tomorrow? What was that MIT? I did a short story called All the Childhood You Can Afford. And it, what it posited was a, it told the story of a, a young man who's in school. He lives at a time when. Parents can't afford to have children, so what they do is they take an embryo, and they take some money, and they put it in this bank, and it accrues interest to the point where when the money is enough to raise a child, the child is given a surrogate mother, brought into the world. It could be long after the parents are gone, and then is sent to school to live on the money that remains, and, and all the childhood you can afford refers to the fact that he, due to the bad investments that were chosen by his parents, uh, has to leave school early and become an adult and so the idea is if you're rich you can remain a child and if you run out of money you have to become an adult and uh and union robots figure prominently so uh oh it's very it's very (laughs) i get your point yeah you're right we're heading there and that's the situation you you ever read the modest proposal you know yes sort of satire like that
0: So just remember we are on YouTube. (laughs) Oh. oh. (laughs) Yes, that's did I did I say something? Oh boy. I guess I'll find out. Any other questions, Patrick? All right. Well, Daniel, I think this is a good jumping off point uh, because these sudden comfort shares suddenly become uncomfortable after about an hour um, to our YouTube and Facebook audience. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Um, Please uh, buy Daniel Suarez's critical mass. We would love it if you would buy it through the poison pen because you can get signed copies through us. But you know what? This is a really important time for Daniel as well in terms of this being his book tour and the first couple of weeks of the books. Book sales really make a difference. So pick it up wherever you can find a copy of Critical Mass. I don't think you're going to be disappointed at all. This is, uh, I know it's early in the year, but it's easily going to remain in my top 10 list. Oh, thank um, Daniel, thank you so much for writing this my book. Pleasure. Let's give Miranda a round of applause. Thank you.
1: Hello.